Doing Justice is my new narrative podcast based on my book of the same name. If you haven't already listened, you can now binge all six episodes. In addition, I spoke with journalist Biana Golodriga for a behind-the-scenes look for each episode. Those conversations are exclusively for members of Cafe Insider, but today I'm excited to share one of these episodes in this feed. It's a look at the story of Reis Buyan, a victim of a post-9-11 hate crime who fought to get his would-be killer off of death row. To hear all the bonus Doing Justice episodes and access the full library of exclusive content, go to cafe.com insider and enter the code justice for 50% off the annual membership. That's cafe.com insider and the code is justice. Okay, so Pri, um, you know, it's interesting having listened to this. There are monumental moments in American history, and I know we're, we're focusing so much on, on what January 6th will, will be and mean for, for our history. But I don't remember the last time I talked about 9-11. I mean, I was here in New York then, and, and obviously that changed my life as it did you know, countless others. But um, I just have to honestly say, I don't remember the last time I had a conversation about 9-11 or I listened to a conversation or thought about 9-11. And this brought back so many memories. I mean, none of them good, <laughs> but I don't know how you feel about it. Well, so on the story of Reis Bouillon and, and how there was all this anti, you know, Arab and anti-South Asian violence after 9-11, you know, I see a parallel. In fact, last week on the Stay Tuned podcast, I ended the show by talking about all this violence. You're seeing a huge uptick against Asian Americans generally, but particularly people from China who have been blamed by the former president and by other people for the coronavirus. You know, all, all that rhetoric that President Trump used to talk about the, the China flu and, you know, uh, Kung flu, et cetera. There's really, really sad and terrifying violence that's occurring even now. So, you know, apart from the other analogies and parallels people make between 9-11 and the coronavirus, there's that. Yeah. And it's sort of the, the ugly side of, you know, human nature and people want to find scapegoats and, and people to blame. And I remember those days here and 9-11 and the following days. I mean, I, I remember this particular story, too, because, you know, being from Texas myself and I was acutely aware of what was going on down there. But what drew you specifically to this story? So I remember when I was U.S. attorney, I was just reading The New York Times. That was back in the day when, you know, it's kind of quaint. I read every paper, uh, the print version. I think I got nine newspapers every day. And at some point, you're showing off. Well, no, I I felt I needed to know about the news and how people were talking about our cases. And sometimes people may not appreciate this. Sometimes leads to cases came from the newspaper. You know, some of our biggest cases came from there was a column written by Juan Gonzalez once in the in the Daily News about this potential fraud on the city of New York. It turned out to be a monumental fraud. We arrested nine or more people, and the company that was responsible for not seeing the fraud had to pay a check of in the amount of five hundred million dollars to the city of New York. So I'm just, I, I was reading the Times and I came across this piece by a reporter who was literally talking about the back and forth missives between this, you know, white supremacist, Mark Anthony Stroman, and the correspondence he was having with Reis Bouillon, who he tried to kill. And something about the nature of the correspondence and the nature of the evolution of both Reis Bouillon's thinking and his thinking just really hit me. And at around that time, I remember I had agreed to give a commencement address. At, I mean, I'd give a lot of commencement addresses at law schools. And I thought this would be a story to tell, uh, which, you know, in some ways, as you tell the story, it's kind of a downer. 
But I think if you think about the story right, it's really awe-inspiring. And so I pieced together the story for the purpose of telling what begins as a sad tale, but then becomes an uplifting one because you see how good people can be and how even though, the, as I say in the, in the program and as I say in the book, you know, the, the law has a lot of limits. It's not meant to do certain things. It's incapable of doing certain things. But if, if people act in a exceptional way, in a forgiving way, then you can get some kind of, I think, justice that's different from what the law provides. Yeah, and I'm glad that you focused on Race's story and sort of his evolution, as opposed to focusing more on Stroman's story. Um, I mean, I think the Elon Ziff factor was really interesting and, and, and that sort of brought everything together. But, um, you know, Stroman, it, it's not as if he had this come to Jesus moment. I mean, I think even some of those blog posts that he had written made you question yeah. where his heart really was, right? But with race, I just think maybe it, it took that time in those 10 years for him to come to peace with where he is in life, right? And he had a new job, he was moving on, and all of a sudden the narrative shift from him being a victim to him advocating for somebody who tried to take his life. Yeah, look, the, the reason, if I had to choose one person to focus on and whose evolution to focus on, it was naturally going to be Ray's Bouillon because I identify with him. I'm, you know, South Asian myself. I've been on the receiving end of looks and sometimes comments, nothing anywhere near approaching what he went through or other people went through. I'm not a white supremacist. So I, I didn't identify with Mark Anthony Stroman in the story. And, you know, there's just, there's just something about the way I felt about the story I, mean, I think I say this uh, in, in the show and in the book, you know, someone shot me and left me for dead. And I asked this question of the audience. I couldn't have done what he did. Could you forgive the guy who did it? And not like, it's one thing. And you hear about this from time to time. And there are other instances of hate crime where people's religion teaches them or people's ethical principles teach them or their, you know, therapists teach them. You have to let go of hate and move on because otherwise you can't really live your life. And I get all that. But he, he went steps beyond that, actually trying to advocate up to and including the day of the scheduled execution. And, you know, there are not a lot of stories like that. And filing a lawsuit against the filing state, Filing a lawsuit, right. right. And, and you know, here's something that's, by the way, it's not in the show, but I, I met Race when I did a book tour event when Doing Justice came out in Seattle. And that's where he has settled now with his new wife. And I invited him to the show, you know, just like the one, you, you know, you and I did in New York when we launched the book. And in the Q&A with the interviewer, the last chapter of the book, the story about Race Bouillon and, and Stroman comes up and I tell the story about him and it's a great moment. And I, I say to the audience, and, and, that, and that man is here in the audience, and he stood up and he got a standing ovation. And he told me backstage, I mean, this is too much about race to, to put into you know, one episode or one chapter of a book. Anand Girdardas has written a whole book about this story, which I commend to people's attention. But Race Bouillon has actually befriended Stroman's son uh, and tried to be a mentor to him. So, you know, this hasn't even ended for him post-execution. Well, I think when he sort of explained to you that there was nothing, there was no value in Stroman's suffering that would erase the suffering that he went through. And again, I'm not somebody that could do 10% of what he did, right? God forbid. But it does give you some understanding as to where he was in, in his thought process and why he was motivated to stop this execution. Yeah, look, I'm not awestruck that often. 
And I see a lot of bad things that people do. And obviously Stroman is an example of somebody who did horrible, evil, terrible things. And I just, you know, I think about race bullion all the time. Um, and, and you think about, well, maybe I couldn't do that, but can I be a little bit of a better person in some ways following his example? And I think it's a good example to give people, not just in how to improve, you know, yourself and how to let go of hate and how to maybe convert people, not through anger, but through love, which is not a way lawyers usually talk, but also as an example of how, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a fool's errand. I don't mean to sound this pessimistic about it, but it's a little bit not possible to get everything you want in connection with justice from the justice system. Justice system has a lot of flaws, but even when it operates well, it doesn't bring victims back. It doesn't teach you how to love. It doesn't, it doesn't do a lot of those things that you need to have a good life uh, and to be a good person. And, you know, in a book and in a career dedicated to trying to get people justice and do the fair and right thing through the law, it's worth thinking about those things that the law doesn't do and that people have to do on their own. Right. And what happens when justice is served? I mean, on paper, justice was served in this case, right? He was caught. He was prosecuted. Um, in Texas, they have the death penalty. Uh, but yet race took this to the next level. And, and just from a legal standpoint, because I don't know the Texas law that well um, or or U.S. federal law that well, <laughs> but I was um, I wanted to ask you about his argument to the court specifically that, that the victims of crimes have a right for dialogue with the perpetrator of the crime. That can you explain a little bit? Yeah. About? So I don't. That's that was new to me. Also, I'm not aware in the federal system of that particular right. You know, not that many years ago, Congress passed a law that you know sustained victims' rights, gave prosecutors responsibility to advise them about the phases of a case, to give them an opportunity to be heard in court, to give victim impact statements in a way that was not quite as robust before. But this thing you have in Texas, where there is some formal right to be able to, you know, commune with, have communication with the person who committed the crime against you is kind of extraordinary. And and maybe it's a good thing. I'm I'm a little not to be naive about Texas, but I was a little bit surprised that that existed. And as race describes, you know, it was a, it was a clever, decent argument, but ultimately denied because the crime for which Stroman was tried and convicted, and and sentenced to the death penalty, was not the crime against race bullion. So he had no standing. Which you know, I I, I think there might have it's been a, a technicality, way. maybe, but yeah, I, I, it seems so. And you know, I don't I haven't read the statute carefully myself. But look, it, 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 the judge even seemed to move, right? He denied the, the request at the end, but he seemed to move by the story as well. Yeah. I think everyone who comes into contact with the story or with race or with the various things that he did can't help but be moved. And sometimes, you know, sometimes to be moved by a story and by someone else's actions can cause you to think about your own actions and your own pettiness. And you, you think about that story and then whatever sort of annoying little thing that's bothering you today or irritating you about a work colleague <laughs> or a family member, it gets put in perspective. Oh, of course. In a very serious way. And I think that's that's a useful thing from time to time, if not more often than that. I guess my last question to you is, as an immigrant yourself, right? And as somebody who you said, at least, you know, obviously you didn't suffer the persecution that race did, but you were a bit weary after 9-11 as well. Um, to, to go from hearing him say, I can't believe I was robbed in the afternoon in this gas station in my dream country 
to then, you know, 10 years later before um, his attacker is executed, they exchange, I love you, bros. Oh, my goodness. How, how did that make you feel? Well, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't keep my eyes dry when Race is telling that story. And, I, you know, that, that's not in the book. And I hadn't really appreciated that they had had that level of communication. And, you know, whatever you think about crime, whatever you think about the system, whatever you think about immigration, whatever you think about the death penalty, that, that's a moment where you just sort of um, are taken aback and think, you know, all of this stuff that we prescribe in terms of rules and statutes and standing and court procedures, you know, all of that fades away. And you just have two human beings, one of whom is maybe transforming, the other of whom was transformed by the incident. And it, I think it just makes you feel more deeply about how human beings should treat each other, how much there is to aspire to, how difficult it is to get there, uh, and it just makes you, it makes you think and it makes you feel. And sometimes you know, the law is not about feeling, really. You're not supposed to make arguments that appeal to sentiment or to fear. But in the real world, when we think about justice, not technical criminal law justice or civil law justice, but when you think about you know what a judge who was once on the podcast, Judge Jed Rakoff, once said, cosmic justice, whatever that is, doesn't have a defined meaning. But there's a thing I think we we think of cosmic justice, that this starts to get at that a little bit. And it, it, you know, it takes your breath away. And look, I mean, race was able to convince not all of Stroman's other victims, but some, right? Maybe not to the extent that he went, but I, I think he was able to, to get to them in ways that they probably never thought they could go yeah, uh, it's, prior you know, to it. I mean, I, I'm sure you remember, and you're from Texas, where there have been a lot of executions over the years. And I remember footage of people, you know, cheering, you know, outside, uh, you know, the walls of a, of a prison or detention facility when it was time for someone to be executed. And there's a bloodlust and a feeling of revenge. And, you know, that would seem to be a natural human reaction uh, sometimes or most of the time. It's useful to see a different reaction um, on the part of one of the victims who has, did not have technical legal standing, you know, to have a meeting with Stroman on the day of his um, of his execution, but boy, did he have moral standing to tell people, you know, how we should think about folks who have committed heinous crimes. Um, not only, you know, how to think about them, but how to think about your own reaction to it. And that's a model for all of us. Yeah, it is funny. You mentioned, you know, executions in, in the past in Texas, and I vividly remember watching the news and hearing about them. But the, the part of it I remember are not those people who were cheering on the execution, but people like race, maybe not to that degree, but people who were arguing to stay the, mo the, the, the motion and, and the case and to fight for their lives. And I never understood necessarily why they would do that for somebody convicted of something so obviously heinous that they'd be sentenced to death. But that's where my mind went after listening to this. Again, I don't know that I, I know actually I could never do what race did, but it makes me feel better to know that there are people like race in this country, I guess, is the takeaway. Yeah, no, me too. Well, all I can say, Preet, is I'm sad that this is our last conversation on these cases and these stories. Um, you know, you're all about not only prosecuting cases and making sure justice is served legally. But I think the fact that you focus so much on the human element here um, and the emotional side of this uh, not only, you know, lets people 
get a glimpse of what your daily life was and those that work with you, but the justice system as a whole. So thank you so much. It's thank been a you. Privilege. Thanks, thanks for these chats. Look, I mean, that's the whole point of the series and of my book. We spend a lot of time, and we should, on the rules, on the regulations, on the procedures, on constitutional provisions, on statutory provisions, and all of that is important and reform is important. But we sometimes do lose sight of the fact that everyone in the process, the defendant, the plaintiff in a civil case, the prosecutor, the judge, the victims, they're all people. And so they respond as people respond. And some of them respond in a flawed way, like people do uh, in every setting. And some of them from time to time, like Race Bouillon, responds in an extraordinary, inspiring way. And I think all those stories are important for us to learn from. So thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode of Doing Justice. I hope you found our conversation interesting. There's a lot more where that came from. To listen to more exclusive content, head to cafe.com slash insider. Enter the code justice for 50% off the annual membership. 